0: Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Omelas, with your host, Aryaman Varma. Here, Aryaman chats with religious leaders, economists, and modern philosophers to help shine a light on the dark corners of economics and religion. So without any further ado, let's kick off this episode.
1: Welcome to Omelas, the show where we dive into the incredible stories of individuals and communities transforming lives through sports. I'm your host, Arman Varma, and today we have a truly inspiring episode. We're joined by Richard Verity, a remarkable individual who's using the power of cricket to bring hope and change to Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Richard, who left a high profile career in management consulting, is now at the forefront of the Alsama project, an initiative that's not just about cricket, but about rebuilding lives and dreams in one of the world's most challenging settings. Stay tuned as we explore how a sport can become a catalyst for change empowerment and healing right firstly thank you very much for taking the time to come on the podcast
0: my pleasure
1: so to get started then could you briefly describe your background and personal journey and how that has led you to where you now are
0: yeah so professionally I'm a management consultant I've been a management consultant for 25 years um, working first for a company called Booz Allen Hamilton and then secondly for McKinsey the more interesting part of my career, however, came in 2018, where I had a midlife crisis, which I managed to synchronize my, with my wife. We both felt very unsatisfied with an existence, in my case, involved a lot of headquarters and airports. Right. In her case, it involved a very comfortable North London existence. Um, She was a novelist and was running a publishing company. So we took a year out, both of us, to, uh, to go to Lebanon and I became a temporary CEO of an NGO that was serving Syrian refugees. And it was a mixed experience. The NGO world did not suit me especially well, but it was also a transformative experience. Uh, during that year, we struck up relationships with a number of Syrian uh, refugee teenagers in the Shatila camp. And I began to play cricket with them. Um, cricket being uh, the only thing I could do with these children that didn't require Arabic. so uh, So we began to play and we found that this was a wildfire success. Right. Um, for any number of different reasons. But perhaps the most important reasons were were that it was the only competitive team sport that girls could play with boys, so for girls this was an extraordinary outlet. And in addition to that, Ariman, and I know you're a very good cricketer, but cricket is a remarkable game for its inclusivity. Sure. Um, small or large, fast or slow. Um, good eye-hand-eye coordination or bad eye-hand coordination, there is a a place for you in a cricket team. And so we could integrate any number of different types of children, and, and then the game has its own appeal. I mean, it's just terrifically exciting, terrifically strategic, it involves lots of English words, and our children began to learn some of those English words and felt very proud of themselves. So Cricket was my bridge into the Syrian refugee world and their bridge out of it as well. Right.
1: And what actually drew you to particularly Lebanon and, uh, you know, helping the plight of Syrian refugees?
0: Well, certainly not no kind of qualification. Um, I couldn't speak Arabic. My wife could. um, So she was more linked up with the Middle East or that part of the Middle East. Right. Um, It was... McKinsey had done some pro bono work for um, uh, for different NGOs in uh, Lebanon. So there was a connection there that I was then able to exploit at the time when I wanted to do something that had more visible social impact than consulting. Um, it was a very good choice. It turned into a very good choice. Um, I had not realized how extraordinarily neglected Syrian refugees were, although There were some clues, weren't there? I mean, you don't get into a rubber dinghy and cross the Mediterranean if you aren't quite desperate. Sure. The situation of Syrian refugees in the surrounding countries is desperate. Um, uh, For a start, the children that I work with have seen war, uh, many of them, and in fact, over half of the children that, that are now part of al-Sama, grew up in northern Syria. So they've also seen ISIS and the girls in particular have vivid memories of that, having to wear gloves, having to cover their faces, all of that. And now they live in refugee camps, which are either tents if they're in the Beka Valley or they are slums if they're in Beirut, where they exist in grinding poverty, uh, facing In addition to poverty, discrimination, because the Lebanese government doesn't allow them them or their parents to work. So so these are an extraordinarily underprivileged group. Um, The statistics tell us that only 2% of Syrian refugee teenagers um, in Lebanon finish secondary school. That's probably because only 2% start. Right. So, so this is a group of people that could hardly have been dealt a worse hand in life. But that is also their secret advantage. Um, When you have so little, when desperation is clearly at the center of your being, you embrace things like education more than, more than children in the West would. And, uh, having experienced their conditions and also created relationships with them both my wife and i were compelled to continue and these were the most remarkable group of children that we'd ever come across their work ethic was outstanding and their ability to learn was extraordinary and that made them very very fulfilling to to serve
1: sure and for our listeners who may not actually know uh, please could you briefly explain what the El project is and what it aims to do? And also, how do you actually make that transition from your original NGO um, to the El project? And how has your role evolved since joining? Yeah,
0: yeah so we started in a very small way. Um, uh, we had a group of children that loved to play cricket, about 20 or 30 of them, and uh, and, and many of them also got to know Micah, and they wanted to have empowerment classes, perhaps two or three hours a week, um, which was essentially kind of mentoring classes to try and keep to protect them from the dangers of early marriage and uh, and, and give them, yeah, I mean, some sense of kind of social cohesion and advice. So that's that was in 2019 was the start of Al Sama. Right. But and, and there are two Syrians, Mohammed and Kadjia, and Michael and myself, who claim the title of co-founders of al Sama. but actually, I would also attribute co- that co-founding title to the 40-odd children that, that started with us. Um, they quickly realised that, that if they asked, they could have more. and and they wanted more. Um, They wanted more cricket. They wanted, in particular, schooling. And so we began to set up a school for these children. Uh, We managed to get, um, uh, we paid for some of it ourselves, but then as you set up a school, which is an expensive institution, uh, we had to get donations from others. So, ex-clients of mine, uh, people that often network towards um, helped us. And we found ourselves with our first school in Chitila. We now have here in 2023, um, three years later, um, from the founding of our summer in January 2020, we now have three schools. We are opening up a fourth school in February of next year. That's what we do. Um, we are—we don't do much else besides. We are, we are providing secondary education for Syrian refugee teenagers in refugee camps. We are practically unique in doing so. Um, the state does not offer uh, much or any secondary school provision and NGOs offer primary schools provision of very mediocre quality, um, but nothing more and our major claim our major claim is that we take uh teenagers or not quite teenagers 12 year olds let's say that we uh who are illiterate and uh, whose only options at that moment are to go and pick up plastic on the street if they're boys or early marriage if they're girls right uh, we take them and we educate them in six months, so that they are no longer illiterate or innumerate. Um and in six years, we want to make them ready for university. And that's an extraordinary claim, Araman, because six year it takes the world's education systems, the one that you're involved in, too, twelve years to achieve that. Sure, we're to do that in six. And in order to do it in six, we have to do some quite innovative things. For a start, we teach 44 weeks a year. Um, there is almost no holidays. We don't teach used, using textbooks. We teach using objectives. Um, so this um, inspires teachers to engage with the children. Sure. Uh, in a way that it's, yeah, it's focused on the children. Uh, we. Um, uh, we 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 have a very particular curriculum that we've created for ourselves that has techniques in it like common theme-based learning. What that essentially means is that at certain moments during the term, all the classes teach the same theme. So that could be, for example, the family budget. You could teach that in maths, you could talk about that in English, you could talk about that in Arabic. And because the family budget is of critical importance to these children and their families, they find this a fascinating theme and they learn very quickly and then they use what they learn in their real lives. So so, so it's an innovative curriculum, it's an extremely long-term times um, and it's very, very high discipline. We have 97% attendance at our schools. Um, right. Uh, And it's extraordinarily successful. Um, The the children uh, learn very quickly and radiate joy when they master the subject.
1: Sure. And what does a typical day actually look like? So what's the balance between um, the academic curriculum and then the sports?
0: So we teach cricket um, six hours a week, every weekend of the year, um, pretty much every weekend of the year. So that's uh, Saturdays and Sundays, and then the very best. And, and by the way, the cricket that we're teaching is softball cricket on astroturf pitches, um, which Lebanon Lebanon has many of. Right, right. Um, but the very best of them are now also um, learning hardball cricket um, and becoming good at that too. Uh, so that's that's cricket, and that's largely at the weekends. Um, during the week, well, during the week they have the kind of schooling that you would just about recognise. So the learning Arabic English and Maths, we have uh, a series of other subjects that we layer on top of that, so that's science, that's IT, that's yoga. Um, we also bring in interns who teach extracurricular activities. So there was a set of interns that taught chess and that has been very successful. Right. uh, And we are now, as of this last academic year, the one that started in September, we had a donor that was willing to sponsor music. So now we're teaching music, hopefully to the same standards and with the same expectations that we're teaching cricket. So it's a school day that starts around eight, Continues to three or four in the afternoon. Um, we try and make sure, by the way, Shatila and Boris El the two refugee camps, are not stable places. They're quite volatile. So school needs to stop when darkness comes, which is around five or six. So that, that, that delimits the day.
1: Right. And, you know, in such an amazing environment, I'm certain that you've had various memorable and enjoyable experiences but could you just pick on one particularly impactful moment that you've experienced during your work with the Alzheimer project?
0: I mean, there's so many. I mean, uh, uh, the moment when Afrad comes to you and says with gleaming eyes that she got up at five o'clock this morning uh, because she wanted to do extra work and... Um, and excel at our classes during the day. Uh, the moment we do a questionnaire and we get in the results, and we find that ninety percent, 95% of children feel proud to belong to Al-Sama. this is an institution that they, that, where they have linked their own personal identities to it. It's giving them more than an education, it's giving them a, a sense of pride. Um, the i mean the, the moment when um yeah when 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 they when they win a cricket match um and these cricket matches that we have um uh frequently but there's also a moment two moments during the year when we when we run championships what is now 50 teams of cricket. Oh right, um, amazing. Because yeah, we may teach uh, we, we, we we teach cricket in the Becca Valley where we have no school. Um, uh, the the moment when um, when the matches are going on and it's like it's like Anfield. It's the, the, there is a cheering crowds cheering uh, as the cricket matches comes to an end and then the elation when one side has won. Uh, these are astonishing moments and uh, and let me tell you I mean I have spent 25 years in consulting claiming that we are transforming organizations and transforming lives, and up to a point we did in our very best projects, but it's nothing like this right uh, here we are properly transforming lives, changing lives, uh, lives that have very little hope and very little expectation to lives that are full of joy and, and and have lots of hope and expectation it's it's easy the most fulfilling thing i've ever done
1: sure and um on a more personal note have you actually been able to pick up any arabic
0: yeah and i won't go on because i suspect that would bore your listeners, found that, that yes, if I was going to do this seriously, I needed to learn Arabic. If I'd known how hard the language was going to be, I'm not sure I would have started. But here I am four years on, uh, and I have Arabic classes every single day, uh, because that's what it takes in order to be even somewhat fluent, and I'm far from that.
1: Brilliant. And Richard, can you describe the current socio-political landscape in Lebanon? Uh, especially in the regions where the al Project project operates, and how do these conditions affect your work and the lives of the refugees that you work
0: with? Well, so Lebanon is in the throes of a financial crisis. Um, uh, so it's it, it, it's, uh, it's suffering from inflation worse than the Weimar Republic. Um, so people have lost the value of their savings. So this is. Lebanese just as much as the refugees. It's an, a, a, a country rendered unstable by the number of refugees. So one in three people in Lebanon is a refugee. Sure. Uh, it's um, it was left behind by the French colonial administration. A sectarian government. So um, uh, different sects control by the constitution different parts of the government, so the president is a uh, Christian, the um, ministries, and, and so on. That has uh that has uh handicapped the the, the, the country um and made good, good governance very, very difficult, uh and, and corruption right. And then, in addition to all of that, uh, you have at least one of the sects, the Shias, now being um, uh, supported by Iran uh, through Hezbollah. So you have a kind of and this has happened before in in lebanon 's history with the Palestinians, but now you have uh, Hezbollah as a kind of state within a state, fully armed and trading missiles with israel as Israel as we speak. So none of this, none of this, is helpful to Syrian refugees who have come over the mountains very often without documents, with very little money, um, and and as I say, uh, they are have been discriminated against by the Lebanese government. Um, they're meant to be returning to Syria. They're not meant to be hanging around they can't return to Syria, they are hanging around, and living in a state of great poverty. Uh, there, That's, I, I think, a, a sketch of, of Lebanon as we speak. It's also, I should quickly say, a beautiful country with very sophisticated people who speak um, many languages. It could easily be the Netherlands of the Middle East. Um, but it isn't. Instead, it's a chaotic um, country, very difficult to live in at the moment.
1: Of course. And
0: um, what
1: measures does the al project take to ensure the safety and security of the participants and the staff?
0: Well, and you may well ask that. I mean, I won't say on a public bro- podcast who runs Shatila, um, but it's run... Uh, Shatila is where we 've started Boni is very similar um, is a refugee camp that that where the Lebanese government in theory does not have jurisdiction so it 's run by Palestinian factions, all of whom are on some kind of red list in the west um, and and so I suppose we are. Uh, In the crosshairs of two types of threat. I mean, the Palestinian factions might see us as, um, as the kinds of people that they wouldn't want inside their camp. And equally, there is also a lot of just petty criminality in the camp. Um, and it's armed petty criminality at that. So drug dealing. Right. We could be under threat from that too. In reality, I don't think we're under threat from either. And, and if you ever, Araman, come and visit us, and, and we, we love visitors, by the way, um, this, is, this, this invitation applies to you and your listeners. What you would find is that you would be welcomed at the gates of the camp by our students. Um, uh, they would then bring you through this maze of streets, maze of very dirty streets, almost like a medieval feel, um, but these, uh, yeah, these these, Jerry built seven buildings to your left and right. And as you walk through the streets, you would find that the shopkeepers who would instantly recognize you as foreign were welcoming you, not the reverse. Um, And that why? It's because, it's because they know exactly that you're coming to the school and the school is something that they treasure. Um, So we have excellent relations with the people in the camp uh of course facilitated by by the children themselves who for whom alzheimer is extremely important
1: right and how do you envision the future of the alzheimer project particularly in terms of expanding its reach and its programs
0: yeah well so we're certainly not going to expand its programs much i mean we are in the business of creating these small secondary schools. Each secondary school is about ch- 220 children. That's all you can fit in a tenement block. And it also allows the head of the school to get to know the names of all the children. It's a bit like, if you like, in Oxford Cambridge College. Sure. Um, everyone gets to know everyone else and, it, and a tight community is formed, which then allows... The people in that community to do exceptional things and to work exceptionally hard, learn exceptionally fast. So we have now modularized these schools. We have four now. We want to have nine by 2027. Every single school depends on a donor. And what I'm now trying to do is to make sure that, that, that we can sustain that very ambitious plan. Uh, Why wouldn't we just stay at four schools and count ourselves lucky? Well, one reason for that is that we have at the moment a waiting list of 2,760 children who have no school to go to. So we can't feel complacent, we can't feel happy with this current situation. We have to grow. Uh, and we can. Now we we know how to do it, but but the funding is always a challenge. We, as yet, not lost a funder because those that have come close to us like what they see, um, and we support everything we do with a great deal of data as well, so that we prove what we what we're doing. I would love, at some stage or other, to have not just. Four schools, not just even knowing schools, but, but many, many schools following the same formula, um, we could imagine ourselves becoming even a kind of franchise operation, one right. in which teach others how to teach Syrian refugees or, or simply refugees. And that's the way we would extend our reach. But we're far from that at the moment. Um, and yeah, we are. Concentrated on the near term, where we would love a few more schools and to reduce that waiting list. Sure. And
1: are there any misconceptions about the refugee crisis that you think are important to address based on your extensive experiences?
0: Dozens. Yeah. I mean, just look at British politics, look at the anxiety that people feel towards the boats crossing the channel. The anxiety that people feel towards Syrians who are potentially ISIS supporters in, in disguise. Right. Um, uh, the more general anxiety, often hostility, that people feel towards Muslims. Um, the, these, are, these are the realities of, of, of people who have never met an Alzheimer child. Um, there's something quite extraordinary that does happen to our visitors and of course the visitors are self-selecting and they're, they're very unlikely to be prejudiced they're much more likely to be people with good hearts wanting to do good sure when they meet these children um uh strange things happen they find themselves i mean like i have found myself extraordinarily respectful of the life experience of these children more than my life experience, despite the fact that I'm three times their age. Um, And incredibly impressed by, by their qualities, by their work ethic, by their ability to take joy out of quite joyless surroundings. These are wonderful human characteristics. And if you see that up close, then any fear or concern that you might have about their differences Disappears.
1: sure and for our listeners what advice would you give to individuals who aspire to contribute to a better environment like for refugees but don't really know where to start
0: it's very hard to know where to start I mean when I was wanting to when I had the same impulse it wasn't clear where to go um, you can always go and work for an INGO Save the children, say, or an Oxfam, but you're likely to end up in an office in 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 a big city in 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 Britain um, uh, doing back office work, and that's not quite what what most people wanted to do. Alternatively, you can you can go out and try and work for a little local NGO. There's often huge language barriers against that, it must be said, and you're going to be paid very poorly. And it's also not the case that the will operate with the professionalism or the clarity of purpose that you might want. So finding an organisation which, in which you can actually contribute um, is, is hard. Um, now i 'd offer Al-Sama up as one of those. We have um, an internship program which is now quite competitive. I mean you have to do get through case studies and interviews but um, we we love to have um, foreign interns come and join us. They fulfill roles in the headquarters, uh, which are important roles the creating of policies, the dealing with donors, but they also are uh, all the interns are obliged to run some kind of project with the children teaching english or teaching something else and that's where they get their their fulfillment so alzheimer's a place to stop a place to go um, there must be other alzheimer's in the world but i must say i'm not quite sure i know where to find them
1: amazing thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Amalas with our guest richard verity it's been an enlightening conversation about the transformative power of sports And the incredible impact of the Al-Sama project in the lives of Syrian refugees. To our listeners, we hope this story inspires you as much as it inspired us. I'm most certainly touched by this project and would love to come and visit. And if you're moved by the Al-Sama project and want to learn more or support their cause, please feel free to visit their website. Remember, every small action can make a big difference.
0: Thanks so much for listening to this episode of the Omelas podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. That helps others find the show, and we greatly appreciate it. Once again, thank you for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.